Chapter Ten of Doors of the Night by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: The Pieces of a Puzzle. Billy Kane made no effort to stop her as she closed the door silently behind her. She was gone. The minutes passed, and he still sat there on the side of the bed, his eyes mechanically fixed on the spot, an innocent blank wall now, where she had disappeared. His face, hard and set at first, grew harder. What was he to do? There seemed a yawn before him to have opened at his feet an abyss, bottomless, pitiless, and he tottered on the brink of it, and unseen hands reached up and snatched at him to drag him from the narrow ledge that was all that was left to him of safety. What was he to do? To go on? Every hour that he clung to this role of the rat held a surer promise not only of desperate peril to himself, but a promise that he would find himself launched in a sea of crime, of shuddering things, of murder, of blood, of sordid viciousness, of hate. In God's name, who was this rat, who in this hole here with its secret opening and its gnawed tunnel to the daylight made the pseudonym so apt? He clenched his hands suddenly, and rising to his feet began to pace the room. He began to see now what, strangely enough, though it should have been plainly obvious all through that day, he had not seen until she, this unknown, mysterious woman, had herself, unconscious of it, made him see. Her power over the rat, to which he was subject in his assumed character, did not in the final analysis, whatever the source of that power might be, materially affect the situation. It was not her threat that was the driving force that must actuate him. There was another, and a far greater force, which he could neither ignore nor escape. He saw that now. If the foreknowledge of proposed crime came to him, he was as guilty, if he stood idly by, as those who became the actual perpetrators of the crime. Tonight, if there was to be murder done, and it was within his power to prevent that murder, or even if it were only within his power to attempt to prevent that murder, and he did nothing, he was a murderer himself. And so tonight he had no choice. He must act. It did not seem to him that there had been any question in his mind about this in a specific way at all from the moment she had spoken of murder. But afterwards, if he went on... The crimes that Red Vallon and Carlin and their confederates would plot and that he would know of? What then? He halted by the table and laughed in a short, harsh way, and in the dark eyes there burned a sudden fire. Was there really any question about that, either? Had there ever been? He asked only one thing in life now, and to that everything else was subordinate, to feel his hands upon the throat of the man who had murdered David Ellsworth and who had fastened that guilt upon him, Billy Kane, to wring from that man a confession that would clear his name. Nothing else mattered. He could run for it, discard this role of the rat, and perhaps effect his escape, but he would thereby throw away almost every hope of bringing the guilty man to justice. The other way was to fight. Well, he would fight. It would be a good fight. And as the rat he would not have to fight alone. If he accepted the chances as they stood, he must accept the risk involved in foiling the plots and crimes of those who thought him their confederate. But against this, the first step already inaugurated, 
he had the craft and cunning of the underworld at his back in the one purpose that meant anything to him now it would be a good fight if he failed he might as well go out this way as any other better this way for then at least some of the projected deviltry would never know fruition he drew in his breath sharply as in a sort of strange relief it was settled now once for all he would go on as the rat to the end and tonight he would see this Merxler plot through to the end. Billy Kane picked up the crumpled piece of paper she had dropped on the table, studied it for an instant, then placed it in his pocket. It contained the scrawled figures of a safe's combination, nothing more, and now, glancing at his watch and finding that it was already a little after eight o'clock, Billy Kane worked quickly. The mask that had served him the night before was already in his pocket, as was his revolver. To these he added the electric flashlight that Whitey Jack had procured for him that morning, and from where they dangled in the block of the door, Whitey Jack's bunch of skeleton keys. He extinguished the light, then passing out through the secret door, which he closed carefully behind him, he made his way quickly through the little underground passage, gained the shed through the trap door, emerged on the lane, and from there, cautiously, he reached the street. He walked rapidly now, but keeping always in the shadows, shunning the direct rays of the street lamps. He cared nothing for the police. His danger did not lie in that direction. Seen anywhere in the city by either police or plain-clothes man, he would be recognized not as Billy Kane, but as the Rat. And the authorities, he was fairly well satisfied, had no particular or immediate interest in the Rat. His danger lay tonight in an unlucky recognition by some prowler of the underworld the report of which might reach the ears of Red Vallon and his crowd. Supposed to be confined to bed, pleading physical inability to take his place at that unhallowed council board of which he was accepted as a member, it would be very awkward to explain his presence on the street within half an hour after Red Vallon and Carlin had left his room. Tomorrow, the day after, it would be a different matter. He could go and come then as he pleased, but tonight... It multiplied his difficulties and his dangers a thousandfold. And yet, after all, that was the most simple of the problems that confronted him. With luck he could see his way out of that. But for the rest, he was almost like a blind man, groping his way along in what was already near to an inextricable maze. He knew something of Merxler, both by sight and hearsay. He knew where Merxler lived that there was a will in the safe which he must secure, that he possessed the combination of the safe, and that afterwards there was the back door of Jerry's before ten, which referred undoubtedly to the notorious gambling hell of that name, and that in these fragments, once pieced together, there was murder. That was all he knew, and there was something grim and horribly ironic and mocking and something forbidding and ominous and premonitory in the fact that he was supposed to know all. The street, for the moment, in his immediate vicinity was deserted, and just well enough within the radius of a street lamp to enable him to see, he drew the package of money from his vest pocket that the old millionaire had confided to his keeping the night before. He selected several bills of the smaller denominations, placed them in his trousers pocket, and returned the package to the inside pocket of his vest. Thank God for the money. 
He had enough in the bank twice over to replace this two thousand that now belonged to the Ellsworth estate, but he could not get it. He was a fugitive from the law. But they should see him through. By the time two thousand was exhausted, he must either have won or lost. He smiled a little bitterly. Win or lose, the estate would at least get its two thousand back. If he won, he would pay it back himself. If he lost, well, his money in the bank had probably already been attached. And now he retreated to the shadows of the buildings again as he went along. His surreptitious excursion from the rat's den last night had, to no one who knew the east side as intimately as he knew it, supplied him with a mental map, as it were, of the neighborhood in which the rat had chosen to reside. A block further on was the Purple Scarf, a so-called bohemian restaurant and dance-hall, as lurid as its name, that for the moment was the craze with the slummers and those of New York's upper strata who aped all things bohemian, and from early evening until early morning a line of taxis waited to snatch their share of the spoils from the free-handed and quite often hilarious clientele. It was a taxi that he wanted, without attracting any unnecessary attention to himself, a taxi that he could not stand on a crowded thoroughfare and hail, and there was, as usual, a line of them there now in front of the restaurant. He reached the corner, drew his hat far down over his eyes, stepped out into the street, and approached the last taxi in the line from the side away from the curb. The chauffeur was nodding in his seat. Billy Kane touched the man on the arm. "'I want to go up to the nineties, Broadway, and probably several places after that,' said Billy Kane pleasantly. The chauffeur yawned and shook his head. "'I'm waiting for a party in there.' He jerked his head toward the restaurant. I got a fare. I know you have, said Billy Kane coolly. You've got me. He extended a ten-dollar bill. There's another one just like this, perhaps more than one, coming later on top of the fare. The chauffeur grinned, pocketed the banknote, and leaning out, opened the door. His grin broadened. What did you say the address was? he inquired. The one I gave you will do for the present, Billy Kane answered quietly. I'll let you know where to stop. Get up there as fast as you can. I'm paying for speed tonight. Get the idea? Leave it to me, said the chauffeur. Hop in. Billy Kane settled back in the seat. The car swung out of the line, shot forward, and took the first corner on little better than two wheels. Billy Kane smiled grimly. Between here and that purposely vague address in the nineties which he had given, the chauffeur could very obviously be depended upon to do his part. In the meantime, and for the first time, he, Billy Kane, had an opportunity to study those scattered pieces of the puzzle in detail. He lighted a cigarette. That there should be a will in Merxler's safe at all had a nasty look, unless it were Merxler's own will— which was altogether too highly improbable a supposition to be entertained seriously. And besides, in that case, what was Carlin's and Red Vallon's and the underworld's interest in the matter? He shook his head decisively. The existence of a will did not tend to place young Merxler in an enviable light. Merxler's uncle, a man by the name of Theodore Rogers, who had died some few months before, had been quite an intimate friend of David Ellsworth. That was where his, Billy Kane's, personal knowledge of Merxler came from. 
He had met Rogers several times at the old millionaire's home, and once he had met the nephew there as well. The two did not get on very well together. Young Merxler was a notorious high roller. Left a large fortune by his father two years ago, he had squandered it to the last copper. Theodore Rogers, his uncle, had time and again, both privately and publicly, stated that he would have nothing more to do with the boy. That was the gist of it. It had occasioned some surprise, then, that when Rogers died, it was found that he had taken no steps to keep his money, what he had of it, some sixty or seventy thousand dollars, out of the young spendthrift's hands. But no will had been found. Rogers was a bachelor. Young Clayton Merxler was a dead sister's only son. And Merxler had inherited as next of kin, and had promptly moved his family—he was married— into his late uncle's residence. Billy Kane finished his cigarette and finished still another, as the taxi made its way uptown. There had never been anything criminal, so far as was known, about young Merxler, nothing wrong up to now, except that he had gone the pace, and that perhaps more than anything else, he had been a foolish and unbalanced boy and had lost his head. But now there were two very unpleasant facts that loomed up insistently. First, it was common knowledge that at the time of his uncle's death young Merxler was having an exceedingly hard time to make both ends meet. And second was the fact that Carlin was in this, too. Knowing Carlin now for what Carlin really was, it looked ugly enough for young Merxler. Carlin, accepted in the upper circles in which he moved as a respected citizen and an excellent attorney, had always been trusted as a friend and the legal adviser of both young Merxler's father and uncle which placed him now in a position where he could be a very useful, if not indispensable, confederate in assisting Merxler to enter without obstacle into the possession of his uncle's estate. The minutes passed. Billy Kane, within a few blocks of his destination, noted the cross streets carefully now, as he shook his head again. The pieces did not fit so perfectly after all. Suppose that Rogers had left the will disinheriting his nephew, and suppose that young Merxler had found that will, and that it was in Merxler's safe now, and that Carlin was a party to it. Why hadn't the will been destroyed? That would seem the obvious and safe thing to have done. And if Merxler and Carlin and Red Vallon were all hand-in-glove in the affair, where was the incentive for murder that she had spoken of? Whose murder? There was a snarl in the thing. He was conscious that he had not untangled it at all to his satisfaction. He tapped suddenly on the glass front, signaling the chauffeur, and as the taxi drew up at the curb, he stepped quickly to the sidewalk. "'Wait here for me,' he directed, and started at a brisk pace up the block. He turned at the first corner, heading east along the cross street. It was purely a residential neighborhood here. There was no other pedestrian in sight for the moment. Merxler's house was one of a row halfway up the block. Billy Kane's pace became a nonchalant stroll. He passed the row of houses slowly, though apparently indifferent to their existence, and then, retracing his steps quite as negligently, slipped suddenly into the shadows of a flight of high front steps, and the next instant was crouched against the basement door. A skeleton key from Whitey Jack's comprehensive assortment crept into the lock. It proved abortive. 
Billy Kane, as he made a second attempt with another key, was subconsciously rehearsing certain details in his mind. There was a light in the vestibule or front hallway above him, but the windows on that floor were dark. Above that, again, the windows were lighted, and it was a fair presumption that the family proper were all upstairs. There was probably a maid, but as there was no sign of life here in the basement, it might well be her evening out. Again Billy Kane selected another key, still another, and then the door opened silently under his hand. He stepped inside, closed the door noiselessly behind him, and stood listening. There was no sound and no light. It was pitch black. He could not have seen his hand before his eyes. And then his flashlight winked through the black, went out, winked inquisitively again, and he moved forward. The stairs were just at his right and made a right-angled turn halfway up. He gained the stairs and began to mount them, testing each separate tread cautiously before the next step was attempted. Stairs before now had been known to creak out discordantly. Billy Kane smiled in a grim, mirthless way. He was becoming an adept at this burglarious trade where silence was so prime a factor. Since last night he—what was that? He felt his muscles, as though without volition of his, strain suddenly and grow rigid. He was halfway up the stairs now, and he drew back into the angle made by the turn. His body hugged tight against the wall. What was that? He thought he had heard a sound as of someone moving in the hall above. But it was gone now, and there was only a stillness in the house. A stillness that, as he listened, became exaggerated until it seemed to possess noises of its own that began to throb and pound and palpitate and make his eardrums ring in. No, there it was again, a light, quick step, and unmistakably now, upon the topmost stair. It was inky black. He could not see. He pressed still closer, flattening himself against the wall. The step was very light, scarcely audible. A woman's step, probably, and probably the maid's. Billy Kane held his breath. If he were found here, discovered, caught, the rat would... He did not care to dwell upon the consequences. Something, a shapeless thing, a deeper, shadowy blackness, passed by him. It seemed to escape contact with him by the barest fraction of an inch. He heard the sound of breathing, then a step along the passageway below, and the basement door closed quietly. There was silence again, save for that din infernal that beat at his eardrums. He lifted his hand to his forehead. It was moist as he brought it away again. A moment more, and he was grimly composed again. It was the maid, probably. That seemed the natural conclusion. Who else would have gone out by the basement door? Well, if that were so, he was left now with almost unrestricted freedom of action. The family being all upstairs, he might reasonably expect to have the first floor quite to himself without very great fear of interruption. He crept on up the stairs and reached the main hallway. Here the dim light in the vestibule, sifting down the length of the hall, metamorphosed the blackness into a murky gloom. He listened again. A murmur of voices came intermittently from above. There was no other sound. There was a door at his right. He opened it silently and stepped through into the room beyond. He closed the door and the flashlight winked out again. He was in luck now. This, at the first venture, was the room he was looking for. 
the round white ray of the flashlight cutting a filmy path through the darkness, fell upon the nickel dial of a small safe that stood against the opposite wall. He crossed to the safe, knelt before it, and took the crumpled piece of paper that bore the combination from his pocket. Thereafter, for a moment, as his fingers moved swiftly, the silence was broken by the faint musical whirling of the dial, and then a slow metallic thud as he shot the lever over, and the safe door swung open. The ray from the flashlight flooded the interior of the safe. It was a small safe, but even so it was evidently more than large enough for its requirements. On the floor of the safe was a package of securities, held together by broad elastic bands, but the pigeonholes were sparsely filled, some being entirely empty. A few minutes' examination disposed of the pigeonholes, and the skeleton keys came into service again on the little locked drawer. The drawer contained a single envelope, sealed. He slit the envelope open. It contained two folded sheets of paper. He examined only one of them, and that only to the extent of glancing at the first few words. I, Theodore Rogers, being of sane mind, and... Billy Kane's face darkened as he thrust the envelope into his pocket and locked the drawer. It was true, then. His lips pursed grimly as his eyes fell upon the package of securities again. He took up the package and riffled it tentatively through his fingers. Theodore Rogers had perhaps been a little eccentric, if eccentricity was defined by a divergence from the general habits and customs of others. He had made no secret that he kept his securities in his own safe, preferring that method to depositing them in a safe-deposit vault, and claiming that, as the securities were made out in his name, and were therefore valueless to anyone else, they offered no temptation for robbery. Young Merxler had evidently followed in his uncle's footsteps in this particular, but Theodore Rogers had been credited with being worth in the neighborhood of seventy thousand dollars. Billy Kane's lips pursed tighter as he replaced the package of bonds and stock certificates in the safe, and closed and locked the safe. At a generous estimate there remained no more than twelve or fifteen thousand dollars. Young Merxler, in the brief period following his uncle's death, had evidently done well. Billy Kane retreated from the room, descended the stairs, and let himself out through the basement door, and five minutes later, in his taxi, was being whirled downtown again. The back room at Jerry's before ten. He had directed the chauffeur to drive to a side street just off the Bowery near Chatham Square. That was close to Jerry's. He had looked at his watch as he had entered the taxi. It was just nine o'clock. He had, therefore, plenty of time now. He took the envelope from his pocket and extracted the two folded sheets. There was not light enough to read by, but that was quite easily rectified. He had his flashlight. He bent down toward the floor of the cab so as not to attract the chauffeur's attention, read both of the papers, read them again, and a look of stunned surprise and bewilderment settled on his face. One was a will, evidently drawn and written by Rogers himself, and duly witnessed, bequeathing practically everything to charity, and specifying four or five different organizations as the beneficiaries. It appointed Carlin, who was referred to as a trusted and lifelong friend, the sole executor, and as a mark of personal esteem, and as a slight compensation for the administration of the estate, left Carlin a legacy of $2,500. The other paper was a letter signed by young Merxler. Billy Kane read this again for the third time. 
If I die before Carlin does, this is a joke on Carlin. If Carlin dies before I do, the will and this letter go into the fire. Damn him, I hate him. He's a smooth, oily-tongued hypocrite. It was Carlin, more than anybody else, who backed my uncle up in the idea of cutting me off. Well, I guess this is where I get even. If there's $2,500 left when I get through, I hope Carlin will enjoy it. But there won't be. I just wanted him to know how thoughtful my uncle was. And it was worth the risk of keeping the cursed will for the sake of the jolt it will give Carlin's miserly, sniveling soul. If there's anything Carlin loves, it's money. If Carlin's got any god at all, it's money. He worships that, all right. Here the letter veered abruptly into direct address. It'll break your heart, Carlin, won't it, to think I spent $2,500 of your money. <laughs> That's the joke, Carlin. is rich, isn't it? And I just want to tell you, too, that you had the will in your own hands once and overlooked the bet. That's where you slipped up, Carlin. It was the day my uncle died, and we were going over the papers together. It was in a plain, unsealed envelope, and didn't look like anything. You tossed it on a heap of other stuff to be looked into later. All you could think of was counting stocks and bonds, getting your fingers in the money, and you didn't know it was yours, well, some of it anyway. I was looking for something else and found it. I only had to read about two words and see that it was my uncle's handwriting. And, well, since you're the executor, you'll find it enclosed herewith. Clayton Merxler. Billy Kane refolded the papers, returned them to the envelope, restored the envelope and flashlight to his pocket, and leaned back in his seat. The taxi lurched and swayed along at a pace that gave small deference or heed to speed laws. Billy Kane stared out of the window. The letter was viciously facetious, callous, and unscrupulous. The boy was a self-confessed and blatantly unrepentant thief. In that, at least, his first supposition had evidently been justified, and it was quite clear now why Merxler had not destroyed the will. But otherwise, the whole affair had now assumed an entirely different aspect. Instead of Carlin being in league with Merxler, Carlin, unknown to Merxler, it now appeared, was aware of the existence of the will, and Carlin, if she had not exaggerated, meant murder, and since no one else was involved, meant Merxler's murder. Billy Kane's face hardened in perplexity. But why? What could Carlin hope to gain thereby? Certainly it was not on account of the little legacy of $2,500. Carlin had only to expose the fact that the will existed to obtain that, and that applied equally to the executorship. And what good could the executorship do Carlin? With the stocks and bonds there open to inspection and their value known, Carlin's executorship could afford no opportunity for crooked work. He could simply turn the securities into cash, turn the cash over to the various charities, and the cash must correspond with the valuation of the estate's schedule of assets. Why, then, murder? Personal enmity? No. Red Vallon and the underworld were interested in this, and the enmity that had caused Merxler to preserve the will, an enmity that no doubt was fully returned by Carlin, had nothing to do with Red Vallon and the rest. Five, ten, fifteen minutes went by. The taxi reached the lower section of the city. Billy Kane st 
still stared from the window, his face still hard in perplexity. Murder. No, he did not understand. But there was still the back room at Jerry's, where he was going now. Did the answer lie there? Jerry's, safely entrenched in one of the most abandoned neighborhoods of the city, was a gambling hell that had boasted a certain exclusiveness, and its patrons quite made good the boast. It was an open secret that men whose names ranked high in the city's commercial and professional world went there for their fling. Jerry, it was said, was an ex-croupier from Monte Carlo, and had brought the spirit of Monte Carlo with him. He, Billy Kane, had heard of the place often enough. The entertainment was lavish, the play unlimited. Did the answer lie there, in the back room at Jerry's? He shrugged his shoulders philosophically now, and a grim little smile came and flickered across his lips. Well, if there were any means by which an uninvited guest could gain access to that back room, he would know within a very few minutes now. End of chapter 10